This is Ian Harvey, the Tokyo US brand manager. I'm here with John Bauer. Um, John is a 12-time US national champion. His international best result was fifth place at World Championships in Escape Pursuit in Thunder Bay. His Berkey results have been amazing. Um, probably to me the most impressive is as a 50-year-old in 2019 getting 12th place. He's also one of my absolute best friends and has been for decades and hopefully will continue to be. So thanks for being here, John. Thank you so kindly, Ian. Great to have you. Great to be part of your friendship sure. and part with Togo. Yeah, thank you. Hey, so tell me um, how you got into skiing in the first place, skiing and ski racing. Well, um, my parents were young and they um, happened to be uh, on a farmland. When, and so it was just natural that we got outdoors quite a bit um, down in the Twin City area. And we used to get out skiing. Uh, my brother and I used to ski to elementary school. Um, so just across some fields, left our skis outside and then skied home. And uh, didn't do anything other than the Dan and Series races initially in the early 80s <laughs> as a 10, 11 year old. Then I, um, um, but I owe everything to my parents for getting us skiing and uh, taking us places where I just fostered the love of skiing. Um. Being that you're a master's athlete, we don't necessarily need to talk too much about it, but you, uh, you skied then in high school and then you skied in college at COCC at a quite an elite level with John Underwood? With John Underwood, yeah. So that involved a world junior team in the middle of that, which was kind of went from, you know, just a college racer. Well, I was in Sweden the year before, but I didn't even come close to the world junior. Well, I did come close to the world junior team, but the next year, not only made the team, but did well there at COCC. Okay, and then um, you've skied 80 World Cups, World Championships, and Olympic Winter Games starts. Um, and during that time, you were also studying quite a bit. So you're balancing ski racing with studying. And again, you've had a fifth place internationally in Thunder Bay and also did really well in 2002, which I guess we'll talk about a bit. So, um, Congratulations on a on a great career as a full time athlete, as well as some amazing results as a as an older athlete. That's something I want to talk about uh, for a second. You're obviously an incredibly fast masters racer. You've won world masters and things like that, but I think a a twelfth in the Berkey's a fifty year old is is in an unbelievable level, um, which would clearly be a win as well at any world masters in any site with anybody there. Um, so what you're doing to stay fit and fast as you continue to age is clearly working. You're also a massage therapist, a certified rolfer. You're an osteopath. You run your business in Hayward, Wisconsin. You're married with two kids in the home still. And I say in the home because um, when they leave the home, then you, you know having two kids isn't as uh, demanding or, or rewarding, let's say. Um, so tell me about your family life and how you're able to balance work, family, and training. A lot of what we do is together, we have different, different modalities, such as mountain biking, downhill skiing, cross-country skiing. We usually uh, split up a little bit as a family. Um, my son and I will go out, um, maybe ahead, but we'll loop back. But essentially what has to happen is I, I get out early on my, you know, on my own. I'm pretty prepared with all my roller skis or running shoes and food and 
you know, everything is really dialed in, if you say, throughout all the years. And I think the, the, the ability to do a lot less volume and hours is, is, is helpful. It's something that I can get quite a bit of mileage off of um, these days. Uh, so sometimes it'll entail, my wife and I will get out, I'll be roller skiing, she'll be cycling, or my son will be biking and we, we basically downhill ski and downhill mountain bike together. We don't split up um, and my daughter and I can run <clears throat> with, um, you know, I'm going easier, but at least she's able to, she wants to do a hard workout, let's say, and it works out in that direction. So you have a very active lifestyle with your family is what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Which I recognize, I've seen that, but that's not necessarily what, I mean, pretty much, I don't know, a third of the people who do the Berkey have active lifestyles with, with their families. Um, that's not going to get you in the top 12 as a 50-year-old, much less the top 200. So you're doing other things, obviously, and habitually, that are bringing you to a very high level. Can you comment on that? The one and only thing that I can connect with another successful, another, any characteristic of a good year is just consistency. I'm doing the same thing virtually Monday, Tuesday, year in, year out, and tweaking it a little bit. Um, so let's just say every Friday this summer, I've done a roller ski skate intensity, and it's the same thing. It's predictable. But every single week, I'm able to find a groove. And this year was just one of those. And those successful years are the same way, where you find a groove, and you know that you're improving because of where you were two weeks ago, for instance. And I think that's the only way by having like little time trials or measuring courses or something like that, knowing exactly how much you've improved or where, where you need to rest. That being said about consistency and doing things the whole summer the same way. Well, it's not exactly the same. There's every two to three months I take five days off or something like that. We have a family vacation where I like, if I jog for 20 minutes twice during that vacation, that's, that's all I care to do, you know, that's not even the focus. It's just to kind of get around and move around. But the, what I struggled with in, when I was going through school and what I struggled with when I had bad years was just so, was just inconsistent training, either too much traveling or an injury or something. But consistency is like huge for, for me. And then I really make really good gains. Um, but Aside from that, <laughs> if I'm doing a, a bounding workout, there's a wall and I'm a wall around a focus, you know, like five, five, 10 minutes before I start, I'm going to get that extra edge that I, that I need to get to push myself to a level beyond where I could get from anybody else. And so, um, and it allows me to, to go and do 100% a perfect technique, 100% effort, and just improve through each uphill climb, for instance, by five to 10 seconds. And I, I know that I'm cooked, or if you will, during a, you know, a hard period. And this is, this is way back from what I used, this is scaled back completely from what I used to do, but where I'm able to continually improve 
every single time where I didn't think it was possible. And I'm able to find that. Those have been my best years. I'm able to find that improvement of 10, 10 seconds a, a hill, you know, which is as you're fatiguing, the ability to find something there. Is. Okay, so you're saying more or less as an older athlete, your key to success has been consistency doing the same thing and you have benchmarks and you focus on improving those benchmarks a little bit every workout kind of a thing and and over the years or over the months you've got incremental improvements that yield some really good fitness and results yes and so, yep it's that's the key so and i i have had the same experience i think this is a similar thing with pretty much all successful older athletes where the key thing is consistency and quality of focus and training and, and having benchmarks that you can refer to from year to year where you know where you're at, you're honest with yourself, strength benchmarks, time trial benchmarks, uphill time trial benchmarks, et cetera. Having had said that, there's an aspect of training that this more or less ignores that's also, it seems to be quite important, and that is the aspect of switching things up to stimulate to stimulate your body in different ways, or you could say muscle and systematic confusion. So your body receives other stimulus and you get through plateaus that might occur. Do you address that at all? Or you just worry about consistency and the quality of training. How do you how do you how do you deal with that? Well, mentally it's harder because you get pretty tired and you just have to go to that very edge where there's a thousand foot drop off right there and you go right to there but you do it in a way that you can still recover you go pretty deeply fatigued and mentally you just that's where you know the the family has really helped because it's opened i mean obviously it's <laughs> super important and training is just this beautiful to you know you know piece of cake piece of the cake here but yeah there's it's it's about um yeah, having the confidence that your body will come back and that, you know, you can go out on a long run. And for this summer, for some reason, I've, I've never run as long as I've been able to this summer, like six hours. I could never do that before. Um, and I don't know how it's I changed my running style. I'm actually healthier. I'm, Lyme disease that I had years ago is way beyond. And I've actually found a way to, to not, um, oh, I break down, but I recover, you know. But what I'm talking about isn't necessarily training and recovering, but changing the stimulus of the training itself. So for example, let's say you do once a week a hill repeat workout, roller skiing, skating with this particular, with a Marve medium wheel, blah, 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 skis, mm -hmm. same thing. And it's like um, six times six minutes of this climb at a particular intensity. You do that after a while, a lot of people would say your body's going to hit a plateau at some point and then you, your improvements will stop. Whereas if you switch something up, like maybe change roller skis or maybe do a steeper hill another time with shorter repeats and then go to a flatter one another time and then go back to that core workout and just switch it up, you might be able to incur more improvement because there's different stimuli in the body and your body then adapts differently. There's that, mm -hmm. that idea in contrast with just plain old consistency and knowing what your benchmarks are. And I see that there's a, a trade-off between the two. And most mm -hmm. successful master's athletes that I'm familiar with, 
are are have put more eggs in the consistency basket and less athlete, uh, eggs in the the switching it up basket. But yeah. younger athletes in the World Cup level really really focus on switching things up and the stimuli as far as strength goes, as far as quality workouts go. Can you talk towards that? Because I know you're really educated about it. Okay, so yeah, I, I, I guess I was misleading in a way that I said consistency because what you're talking about is exactly what I've been doing and mixing things up. So while I'm consistent and I varied, initially I said I had two to, four, two to three to four development days, even though I might have a, my roller ski benchmark where I put in another intensity workout is somewhere in the week and it's done at varying levels of exactly only I know when I'm ready for it. And I'm, I put in strategically a couple of days where I'm gonna fail where I'm my heart rate, I, I have heart rate suppression from fatigue. And I mix it up with different amounts of ski erg workouts, um, different amounts of running. So one day will be, um, you know, the, my longer runs are never on the same day, but I'm doing roughly the same thing at a, at a, at a way that worked in the past of, of, of highly, you know, like one day, one week was four development days. I mean, that's a really long run and three intensity workouts. And it could be done skating uphill. It could be done pole bounding. It could be done fart like running. And it's consistent and in, in, in only in the way that I get to a, a three week cycle of these workouts. And again, these are, you know, the total time training is one to two hours a day on average or something, you know, something like that. That's, that's at the most, but the, the ability, you know, like if, when I feel really good, I'm able to, to push it and I'm able to accept when I don't feel so good to just to bag it. Um, and that's helped quite a bit. Okay, cool. Does that make sense? So I guess it's kind of following, yeah. you know, like the, the completely stressing yourself in a <laughs> in a consistent way, but you have in the back of your mind what you need to do that you didn't do before because you plateaued. Yeah. So you've got basically a framework that you work within that's fairly standardized. So many super long workouts or long workouts a week, so many developmental like low level intensity or medium level intensity workouts a week and so on. But within that, you switch it up a lot. You know, I do. the small changes in the intensity as well as in the distance and even in the modality, perhaps mm -hmm. so a lot of variability within your fairly structured and regular plan. Yeah, for, yeah. And I feel like I have it nailed. I mean, I had it nailed 20 years ago, but I, I want to say that, the key thing is like I always do my intensity in the evening. I just I can go harder. I feel better. The workouts are more quality based versus going out and doing intervals when you're like rested, which so you basically go out in the workout, do an intensity workout in the morning and then um, you're kind of too tired to do anything in the evening. You know what I mean? Yeah. I always wanted to have a quality workout in the morning and then I always would do that. I would I would just that's a key part of that in two workouts or two to three workouts, even if it's a 10 minute ski or pull at a high intensity is, is stuff to mix it up, you know, in there. Sure. So we'll get back to skier a little bit, but um, in terms of keys to skiing and training success, 
I think a person has to prioritize, especially a master's athlete has to prioritize. Um, there are some things that you can focus on though. Like so for example, body composition is extremely important. I would say even especially for a master's athlete because that can get out of control. Nutrition, regularity in workouts, doing special workouts, um, balancing your overall stress load, achieving balance in life. Um, what are some things that you prioritize? Well, um, yeah, body composition is important, you know, for running in the summertime. Um, my weight fluctuates a bit. I try to have, you know, a good diet of, of um, unprocessed foods. Um, try to eat as much as we can that's cooked. Um, there's getting enough rest, consistency to bed, um, disconsistency, you know, like same that's really the most important thing for me is getting enough sleep. I just can't function off of a five hour sleep night, you know, or a six hour. I just need to have eight hours, not 10, but eight hours. Um, and the more that I move, it just helps keep me injury free. But yeah, I mean, after all these times, I mean, there's a lot of good uh, technique that's built up and, you know, it's really fun because I, a lot of the work is behind me. You know, I just have to like kind of like like racing a sports car, you know, like you've done some of the work and you're older and you have to plan for that. You have to plan for the aging. Everything feels the same effort, but you're slower <laughs> and to go with it, you know. Yeah. So here's a question. Do you have any special methods for mean or for monitoring your stress levels? Do you pay attention to your stress levels? In other words, you know, where you might be heading towards overtraining or getting sick because you've, you're trying to do too much or there are some external influences that are acting on you that, that mean you can do less. So do you have any ways of monitoring your stress levels and do you adjust to that or do you just kind of suck it up and smash through it? Mm, there's, I, I pay attention to what I have, have to do in my, you know, with my work and, um, my, my wife and I both work some, we have a schedule set, but we have extra hours that are devoted and uh, on call, if you will. You know, my wife is up in the middle of the night, but my days are kind of some emergency base days. So yeah, I've had to, it's just about being honest and, you know, looking at the big picture is like, yeah, this is great that I um, get out and, enjoy it but if i'm crabby it's not worth it you know what i mean yeah well, what I'm saying and, and some some athletes use heart rate variability for example or first beat technology to to anticipate getting overtrained or anticipate and prevent uh sickness whereas as a master's athlete i think it's difficult because you're in situations oftentimes where you just you're tired you're darn tired and you're just in a situation where you're just trying to get out and get a workout in and you know you're going to be tired, but you got to do it because if you don't do it, you're not going to get a workout in. And and sitting in an office for a while or going to, I don't know, a meeting or something isn't going to get you any faster. So I'm wondering how much you compromise in the name of staying healthy and reducing stress, or do you just kind of say, well, there's certain things I need to do in order to achieve my goal, so I'm just going to do them, and I'll try to live as healthy as I can outside of that. Yeah, so I use two keys to just monitor how I feel. One is um, not as dangerous as the others. My legs are tired or heavy. The other is heart rate suppression. 
that's the only thing that I've known to be like really reliable um, in terms of overtraining. So if I have too many days, like that one I stop <laughs> nowadays, if I can't get my heart rate up at will, and particularly during a hard workout, then I know. But yeah, so I don't push through too much and I, I take a rest day off. I've always taken a rest day off, at least one, one day off, one passive day a week for work or for others, you know, filling stuff, maybe two. And that's just been something that's helped me, I think in the long run with not overtraining, you know, just kind of a, a cushion. But, would, just to compare notes, I would say those are my two absolute keys as well when it comes to monitoring how much of a training load I can take is how my legs feel, especially if you have the heavy, tired, chronically tired legs. Um, you're in trouble. And then for sure, heart rate suppression also, I, where you're trying to do a quality workout and despite how uh, you can go as hard as you can and your heart rate's just not going up, that's a, another danger sign. Uh, those, are, those are my keys as well, for sure. Yeah, and just for fun this summer, the week, week before vacation, I was getting tired. So, uh, this, my uphill intervals um, for intensity, peak heart rate of let's say 172. Well, I come back, and I'm getting um, end heart rate of 179. So I know that I was getting tired then. But I'm talking about some heart rate suppression. If you can, for the life of you, get your heart rate above 150. That's, and it would just depend on what you've done before on how serious of a, of a consequence that is. But generally speaking, you know, like a week off, and I know that I'm training tired a lot, but I, I'm, um, just off of that fact of that taking a week off and my, it can elevate my heart rate to well above the standard accepted heart rate max for my age norm. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about the same thing. Exactly. And I think those are my two biggest keys as well. And I think as a master's athlete, those are what I would pay attention to. There are some things, like I said, heart rate variability and first beat technology that I'm sure are helpful. But if you're not taking advantage of those heart rate suppression and how your legs feel are, are, absolutely critical information that you can go off of. That's good. Um, so I'd like to know what you do for strength. I think strength training has changed a lot and has become more and more important for cross-country ski racing and the ways that it's done and what people focus on has changed a lot. Um, for example, well, I don't want to put any words in your mouth. So I'd like to hear about your training because I don't you know I've spent a lot of time with you and I don't see you doing a lot of strength training I know you've got yeah. a spirit and I know you do some plyos but I, mm -hmm. I'd like to hear about what you specifically do for strength training yeah so I got out of um funny story here like back in the 90s the skiing brass eye looked like uh uh oh I don't know Hulk Hogan or you know like um because I was, you know, big deltoids. And I was doing a lot of strength training in the gym at COCC. I mean, we were doing that heavy, heavy, um, like three times a week, you know, like at an hour at a time. And, um, and, and I guess I was criticized for it. And, but I find kind of it ironic because now um, everybody's doing it. But yeah, I mean, I got hurt doing some deadlifts and I still do weighted squats when I can get to a gym it's just it's that's just one of the things that I have to let go but what I do do at home is I have um a 65 a set of 65 pound barbells for bench pressing or for rowing um like a like a lawnmower start rowing 
So um, dumbbells. Dumbbells, yeah. Okay. So 130 pounds total. And I use those in a variety of ways. Um, I also have a, a weight vest. Um, when I do, and I'll do jumps with that, that's up to 20 pounds. So I know it's not much. But um, because I have a pre existing back injury from 20 years ago, spinal thesis, I have to be really careful. And I do great if I, if I don't lift, you know, like do deadlifts. Like I got injured lifting, uh, deadlifting 350 pounds and, and I did it twice. And I was like, if my back can't do that, okay. <laughs> but I agree that it's really important the jumping and the hill, the hill, um, hill repeats is, is really important. But as I've aged, putting a lot of heavy forces into my body is gonna decrease my ability to do it for a long time. I mean, it could end it. In other words, injury. Injury, yeah. Yeah, so, and the ski erg, I vary from 10 minute high intensity, 300 watts, as long as I can, you know what I mean? And I'm not, you know, I'm 135 pounds, so, I, you know, I, for my size, that's been weight and whatever. In my height, I don't have big levers. So that's pretty good, and I vary it down to uh, an hour threshold at the ski erg. But again, putting different, like, um, grits the sand into the cogs, you know, to try to grind it out, varying that, never never the same. It's 20 minutes, 10 minutes, just depends on what else I've done that day and what I need to do. So, um, so basically my, I do the squatting, push-ups, pull-ups, skiered, plyometrics, um, some laden, some, some of the seated leg presses, you know, with machines, nothing that I could really get hurt on, you know, like I'm not holding a free weight. So let's talk about skier because I think for masters athletes, skier is a really important tool. Um, skier enables you to train quickly and efficiently. Um, you know, you don't have to drive somewhere to do it if you have one in your home, which is really important. Um, you can get a high quality workout in in half an hour. I mean, super hard, high quality workout in in half an hour. It's very specific and has great yields. You can do it in the dark. You can do it in bad weather. Uh, it gives you a flexibility. You can mm -hmm. work, run out and do a skier workout and shower and be back at work in no time flat. Mm -hmm. um, having it said that, as you pointed out, you can do a lot of different workouts in the skier. In other words, that, that varying variability to create more stimuli. What are some workouts you do on the skier? Like you must have three or four core workouts at the most, I bet. Probably two or three at the most mm -hmm. that you do. You know, you're not going to do this kind or you're going to do this kind or whatever. What are some of the workouts you do on the skier? Um, I try to limit how much threshold work I do at like above 155 heart rate. But sometimes, so one core workout would be an hour. Of, of a threshold, so you know, 15 kilometers or 16 kilometers, something like that, which is, that's one of them. The other one is the 10 minute one, completely maxing out, you know, like um, it involves, you know, almost literally jumping up on the sprint, you know, stuff that I don't normally do uh, for skiing. And the other is varying, um, two to three maximal pulls and then shorter pulls is, you know, varying that for the whole 50 minutes. That being said, I've got a 10 minute workout, a 30 minute workout and an hour workout. And 
those are the main ones. Um, usually I use setting number eight. It works where I um, can generate a, a good amount of power. I don't go up to 10. I haven't, you know, but those are my um, workouts. There's also, let's just say there's one more of the 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. But I really like it. I've been playing with it. Um, I don't have, you know, like it's 100% effective training time. You're not coasting downhill, which isn't to say that roller skiing is important. It's just that it's 100%. It's like you versus the machine. Um, it keeps you completely honest. You can track your, how you're feeling and, you know, it's a useful tool. So when you do skierg, I, I, I've seen a lot of people do skierg, especially videos of people doing skierg. And they're not only jumping up and down, but their hands are going almost as high as they do when they're doing a pull-up. You know, like their hands are way over their head. What, what, when you do skier, do you try to use ski-specific technique? Like, do you look I, like you're skiing? Um, so, like those big, so yeah, so the, the, like I said, the two or three pulls at a full ski motion, you know, because the guys setting the records on the skier, they don't look, it's not skiing. Not at all. <laughs> right, right. And so then I'll vary some of that to the, some of the more nor, some of the more quick pumping, which is not ski-like, but it also generates some snappiness. So the skier is both the tool of the long, drawn-out, um, you know, ski pulling. Of course, keep bearing in mind we're not, you know, we're not bending at the waist like we used to. It's more of just the arm and uh, fluttering. So you can do pure abdomen, not pure, but more abdomen-focused pulling. You can also do whipping with the hands and I do a mixture of that. Um, just varying out and trying to get stronger and seeing, you know, it's an experiment. I've never had one before. I've used it, um, but I've not never as consistent as, you know, it's right right in my garage. So the I think the the more ski-like motions are um, for strength and the more rapid whipping would be for intensity you know like trying to trying to to play with that i'm not um so i do do a little bit of both of those keeping in mind that yeah it's it's not the same so you mentioned when we were talking about skier when we started you mentioned you try not to do very much work at all over your threshold so except for that 10 except 10 for the deal. 10 minutes you your 10 minute max deal, deal. Um, which is more or less your time trial. It's only 10 minutes. You can get a lot of work done in 10 minutes, of course. Um, but I'm kind of surprised to hear you don't do tests that are, let's say, half an hour or longer or something like that. Why is I've, that? Me I've measured everything on for meters, and I know what's been a quality workout. Um, but there's, I sometimes I'll finish a run, and and I, you know, I got to finish with the skier, or I'll have a really poor skate ski and I want to go figure out what it is why my heart rate was down and I get on the ski rig and I you know like I can do it so my legs are tired you know so I've got to adjust the training to just do some classic roller skiing um, um why why I don't know is it the, doing so much quality workout outside of the skier if you if you do really hard stuff in the skier then you're just going to be tired all the time yeah, it's a little bit of danger of overtraining. I came across that. I had like four intensity workouts and yeah, yeah, um, I mean, yeah, yeah. So it's it's really easy. It's a, such a powerful training tool that you can overuse it. 
Yeah, for sure. Depending on what you're doing outside of doing the skier, you know. Exactly. Like summer, what I do is I do a lot of hiking, a lot of playing around the mountains. And for that reason, I don't have to worry about overtraining in the skier at all. You know, I do it every every third or fourth day and I can hammer because I'm not pole, using my poles in the summer outside of that. So, mm -hmm. uh, but if you're doing a lot of roller skiing and uphill intensity and so on, of course you do too. So here's a question. On, when you work in skier, do you do diagonal? I do not. <laughs> I think you're missing the boat. Why is that? Yeah, I don't know. I have yet to try that. I just feel like um, that, um, that I haven't yet come to, I, I haven't experimented with it. Part of it is just, um, I don't know. I can't answer that. Yeah, it, 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 um, I feel that I should, that I feel that just the one arm at a time. Um, and, and also because I bound so much where mm -hmm. I, um, where I do a lot of pulling with my arms. And so when I'm running, I have a, a Garmin watch and I've been tracking and that's what's got me health, healthy as far as ground contact balance. And I know, so when I uphill, when I, when I uphill run, I'm 50, 50 foot balance. When I down, when I run downhill, I favor one side, but when I, but as I gain running fitness and I would bound uphill, I was um, initially the uphill running that I had was favoring my right leg. I was on my right foot more, but the bounding even that out, I was always 50-50 exactly. So I use my arms quite a bit. I know to balance out the feet. So I know I'm using one, probably one arm more than another, but uh, yeah, between, um, I just feel that that the core is important for me on the ski erg, and I, yeah, I haven't, um, I have yet to explore that territory. Let's put it that way. But, but for I sure, know that bounding, when you're bounding, using a ton of triceps and working them individually, so yeah, you get a lot of strength out of that. My experience is in the, in the ski erg. If I'm double pulling, I can more or less try to isolate my big muscles, you know, lats and and obviously stomach core. But if I'm, mm -hmm. if I'm single sticking, then your triceps have nowhere to hide, you know, and you can develop mm -hmm. a lot of tricep strength that you wouldn't develop if you were just double pulling. But it depends on what you're doing. Otherwise, of course, I'm not, I'm not bounding. So I'm not stressing my triceps the way you are outside of skier. So for me, it's important mm -hmm. to do your diagonal and for you probably less important. That makes sense. Okay. Um, Let's talk about, uh, as you know, I'm a Toko glove designer. And one thing I like to ask people is what their favorite Toko glove is and why. It's always interesting for me to hear. Yeah, well, I love the Arctic. So I love the Arctic glove, it's hands down. I mean, it's hard to say because I'm gonna give you three answers, but I know I can't, you know? <laughs> I love the roller ski glove. I love the, you know what I mean? But, cause I roller ski, you know, so much and I, um, yeah, but I love the Arctic. It's, it's by far, yeah, it's the reason I can still ski hmm. because I have, because yeah, cold exposure and, you know, and the feel of it. Cool. That's great. And it's not about the glove. I'm here to, yeah, but I just love the, the fit of the feel and the, you know, even though it's got a lot of insulation, it works, works the best for me. Cool. That's, that's the first, that's out of the athletes I've interviewed you, the first one to say the Arctic, which is great. So do you have a favorite race venue and why? If so, why? 
Well, um, I loved racing at Soldier Hollow. That was super fun to be kind of the top of your career, but I, I also like to go to Davos, Switzerland. Just because not, you know, it was the, it was the whole package there of the race venue and what it meant to me at the end of the first part of the World Cup season. Um, the rolling course, the narrowness of it, you know, it's just kind of old school, if you will. Um, beautiful, you know, you had to cross a couple passes going there. And it was a hard course, it was at elevation. Yeah. You know, I have so many experience, so many ex different experiences. I mean, I'm blessed, I mean, I could say, um, you know, I would say Val de Femme was not my most favorite, but other than that, I would probably say almost any place, you know, from Albertville, France to Ramsau. Ramsau was pretty cool too. But, you know, I think Davos is still the winner. You know, I just, this, it's a neat place, you know, just because I had read German and uh, German novellas in, in college and a lot of it was on Davos. Mm -hmm. So on the same uh, theme, what about a favorite race that you've ever had? Well, um, favorite race is probably the Salt Lake City Olympic relay scrambling for the team. Just felt just everything was on. Uh, the next day I was next day I was gone. I had, <laughs> I mean, for that whole um, remainder of the Olympics there. But I mean, just having everything come together was, um, I mean, I thought about that day and, and more importantly, what had made that happen. So part of me isn't about results. It's about kind of the process of getting there. I really enjoy that, figuring it out, the ups and downs. And I don't care who you are, everybody has downs. Um, from the best people, um, they all have, you know, tough periods. Um, but everything clicked there. I mean, I, I have to, you know, just say that was a really magical day for me. The whole 2002 Olympics were very successful for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but in that particular, in that particular day where, yeah, yeah. man, I would have loved to have canned that race. And <laughs> For sure. But I mean, the, the relay is as exciting as it was and, you know, having a, a result like that at home, that's fantastic. But the, the whole Olympics, you had some very good results. Yeah, was, I had fun. The relay. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. So tell me something else. It's something uh, I, um, I just kind of thought of to ask you, but tell me about your strengths and weaknesses as an athlete. Well, initially, I think the uh, weaknesses I had were um, caring a little bit too much, uh, kind of worrying about what people thought. You know, I was... Just for the record, you're still an athlete. So I'm talking about now as well as... <laughs> now or then or whenever. But strengths as an athlete. So... Um, I really like what I do. I'm committed to it, um, gifted for it. Um, and um, just, I'm so glad I st stuck with, you know, uh, skiing um, as far as, you know, sticking out some tough times, injuries. Um, technique wise, I think that's one of my biggest strengths, you know, the ability to balance in my feet and have really good motions for my body type. 
um, that was, that's been really fun. And I didn't have that initially in high school and in my twenties, you know, I had to work really hard for, on my technique. And I think some of the things that I came up with is like, you know, one of the best technicians in my later career, you know, for that. And, um, and then, you know, weaknesses was, um, you know, I had to go through school. I mean, probably that was a weakness as an athlete, but I, you know, I got wanted to get through school. It was kind of on my, kind of something on my shoulder that I had to get done, you know, then it, it affected my career. I don't think I could have, I don't know. I can't go back and change anything. So, but, but because I cared so much, you know, as well, you know, I'll, I'll get this done and the schools, the studies, you know, um, and I enjoyed it. I'm talking about still now, like I, I drive you to the start of the Berkey a lot. And when I drop you off, you are no longer the guy who I hang out with oftentimes. You're a, you're in race mode and it's not like you're aggressive or something like, you know, some people might think, but you're just focused and you're amped up for the race and you're like a racehorse who seats the start. And I know you're going to go out there and just kill it. You know, um, that's a strength you have. Absolutely. Like you are a racehorse. You are a guy that performs and loves to perform as much as you might like training day in and day out and you love the lifestyle and you're willing to sacrifice day in day out. You also have an aspect of absolute, performing on race day that's an absolute that's strength that you have that you didn't necessarily mention but also you're willing to sacrifice day in day out and actually love it that's a strength that only elite athletes have really yeah and i've, and I've been able to carry through that into my business into my studies of you know like finding that extra finding that extra you know bit to to push yourself you know in terms of doing a little bit more so my philosophy has kind of always been you know, pick this one level and it's going to be high up. And not that it isn't unrealistic or that you just set a completely absurd goal, but if you can come close, you're going to accomplish a lot. So I've always tried to dig up to that. I know where that ceiling is. Um, and, you know, I've been able to bring it to my, to my business in terms of really finding that, I don't know, what did it, I don't, I wouldn't call it the extra 10%. It's just cliche, but finding that mental focus sure. of being in a flow or something, you know, where you, like I talked about before workout, like five minutes, I, you know, like there is, there's stuff coming in, but it's bouncing off. You know what I mean? And so I take that focus that I have and have brought it to, to really help my business. It's helped um, an ability to, and in some ways the downside of that has been, workaholism or you know like too much focus so i have to keep that in mind i guess i guess to summarize that specific thing you just brought up would be when it's important such as during a workout or an event single-minded single-minded focus so you're from the midwest you grew up in duluth and you live in hayward and you're midwest through and through tell me about what it's like to be a member of the Midwest ski community as compared to, you know, maybe in the Rockies or Alaska or New England, the Midwest is pretty unique and special, I think, in the United States. Yeah. Um, that's a good, that's a good, you know, question and observation. Um, but I just think it's, uh, it's easy to get around. It's various sites to ski. Um, in Duluth, for example, there's, um, where that's where I am right now at work. Um, there's 
five different places to ski. And while there is only like a five, a five K or a 10 K or a 15 K loop, you can go and hone your skills on that. It was never a problem for me to do that. So the Midwest is a lot of those types of places, like tons of places to ski, tons of races. The Vasabi invitation was grown to, grown to 600 starters. I mean, it's completely like, it's huge. Um, but I think people, a lot of people do ski here in the Midwest. And um, there's, a, you know, there's, Duluth was a, and still is a, a, a cross-country ski community. Um, a lot of people, a lot of physicians ski, their wives ski, their kids ski, they all have done it. Um, it's, just, it's just something people, they're either playing hockey or they're cross-country skiing. And for me, in the Minnesota State High School League, it was really competitive. I mean, there was Ben Huseby, Todd Boonstra, um, it was me, um, um, Jessica Diggins, and then her, you know, it's funny, the track that Annie Hart and Jessica Diggins had, they were basically side by side during their high school years and just one went one went a little higher than the other, you know, it wasn't like Annie was, but there were two people like that training together nearly every day who could push themselves and that's what you have here, I think. There's a, I had, I had to do it kind of a hard way, but where I was kind of like faster than everyone else in my high school, it just, that's just an observation. It's just the way it worked out. But um, the ability for us to, in the Midwest, the Midwesterners, to just in two hours, you're between race, race sites. You know, that's really helpful for keeping kids in the sport and keeping parents enthused. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, that all resonates with me, and I've seen that. There's something different about the Midwest, too, though, once you hit a certain age, and that is the Berkey spirit and the, the American Berkebiner kind of makes the Midwest different from, let's say, New England, where skiing is also quite popular in northern New England. But a, there is such thing as the Berkey spirit, and it is amazing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, it's um, the Berkey is an old, an old race for here. <laughs> I have the first book written, book called Berkey Fever, written by Tom Kelly. And um, I mean, that it just started right from the beginning. I mean, other than 1973 in the first year, there were opening ceremonies that aren't anymore. But I mean, there was just so much energy that went into it and then it just went supernova. Um, so the whole race week, I mean, it's what, you know, I mean, people just get nutty um they're so enthused they're driven for that race it's a, one of the best ski courses in in the world you know it's um it's an impeccably run yeah there's been glitches but um it's a it's a really neat you know it's a it's hard to explain what what it is but it gets people you know training and enthused and there's all tons of volunteers you know they don't always have enough but there's just so many people who oh you ski the bird i mean that's so the question i have i mean um so i would introduce myself and um i don't say everything i could but i you know i humbly say well you know i'm cross-country skiers oh you ski the berkey you know and yeah. that's like their first question you know everybody you meet they're oh, you must ski the berkey you know 
Yeah. And so it's an institution, if you will, for cross-country skiing. And it's, you know, here in the Midwest, you know. Some, some it's kind of a meeting ground of, you know, like everybody, the Berkey's got different, <laughs> it's kind of like I was telling Tom Kelly, it's like the, the base of the, the pyramid for U.S. skiing. You know, like people are, the lead athletes have come and raced it, but it brings them up to a different, you know, like it's a, kind of the foundation. Definitely. Some things that I've noticed about the Berkey spirit is, for example, I'll be at the expo working and someone will come up and ask me for some wax tips. And I'll generally want to know at what level they're skiing at because I don't want to recommend some super expensive wax to someone who's just there checking it out kind of a thing. And so I'll ask them and I hear all the time, well, actually, it's, this is my first time skiing. I never skied before or it's my first race. I've never raced before. And inevitably, they're doing the 50K. They're doing the full Berkey. It's incredible. And I say, wow, you know, that's, that's going to be a real challenge. And they're like, yeah, I know. And it's just amazing. <laughs> and then the other thing that's amazing to me about it is, say you're out there doing the Berkey, and, and let's say you finish the Berkey, and more in our case, and you come back four hours later to, to check out the scene. And you've got tons and tons of people pouring across Lake Hayward and across the finish line, you know, six hours, eight hours, whatever it is. And they're super enthusiastic. And all the people, the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are lining the side of the trails are cheering for them as enthusiastically as they were cheering for the winner. And it's a, it's its own microculture and scene. And, and it, it's like in other places in the United States, snowmobilers and cross-country skiers at best tolerate one another. Whereas at the Berkey, you've got snowmobilers who are wholeheartedly ringing cowbells and cheering them on and, uh, um, cooking brats and handing, you know, exactly. all day long, they're serving the cross country skiers and there's a mutual love and respect there. It's really an amazing thing, the Berkey spirit. And along mm -hmm. with that, in the Midwest, I'll also find you can go skiing in like zero degrees Fahrenheit with a 30 mile an hour wind and encounter tons of other people that are super cheery and talking about how lucky we got with the weather. Whereas in where I live in Utah, no one would go outside in that weather. And so yeah. I love how tough and hardy and cheerful the Midwesterners are about that kind of weather adversity that they embrace and they dress properly and then they love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Love, I absolutely love mm -hmm. the Midwest skiing spirit and community. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, yeah, at the snowmobile crossings, you know, that's, that's something that the, the snowmobilers just love watching people negotiate the downhill, you know, the curvy ones. And, <laughs> Yeah, uh, Heckler's Hill, you know, is the name for that hill. Yeah. So. <laughs> cool. It's yeah. I've got a couple of rapid fire questions for you that are on a personal nature. First, what languages do you speak? What languages do you speak? Well, I speak Swedish. That's the one I'm most comfortable with, but it's not very practical because uh, you know I'm just not using it so much anymore on on my um, on a day to day basis. And then the other is German. Yeah. And uh, I studied that in college, but yet I haven't not been to, to Germany. I've been to Austria and Switzerland and parts of Italy that do speak German. Yeah. Yeah. And if you could learn another language, what would it be and why? Well, when we went to France in 2017 with our family, my wife had um, continuing medical education. And we were in Paris and the Loire Valley and Chamonix. And I just, I really like, um, I really that trip, trip, and you know, impacted me greatly. I've, and my mom taught French. It would be, you know, something completely different than what I was doing. Yeah, I thought about Spanish, but 
I mean, French, I would like to, I'd like to learn. You know, that's, cool. I think it's partly because of the experience I had in France. Oh, that's me. Three years ago, yeah. So here's another question. What's something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out about it? Oh, I used to play the saxophone, but that, but everybody maybe knew that anyway. But I do stained glass work, artwork, using leaded glass. And um, that I really enjoy. I haven't, I don't do it as much because I have too many competing, you know, as hobbies. But I, I've done quite a, I've done about a dozen works. And I'm not talking about these little sun catchers. I'm talking about some pieces that are five foot by five foot. And there's involved a lot of engineering to get them upright. And they're still, you know, to be still standing. And um, actually even sold some pieces. But um, I, I basically, I've still, I'm just doing that uh, as a hobby basis. But I really like it. As you know, I've seen many, much of your work, and I think it's amazing. It's cool. It's fun, yeah. Thanks. Hey, and lastly, do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Uh, um, well, I think a, a good, if you're willing to, to try, if you're willing to focus a little bit, but and more willing to suffer a little bit along the way, you go a long way. You know, as long as you just put in the in the effort and enjoy what you do. But the key part is you gotta enjoy a little bit of work. It's just simple. You, you it's there's nothing easy about you know having your own business, and there's nothing easy about you know, saying the right thing to your kid. Um, there's nothing easy about, you know, high level athletics. It all has a cost um, to that. But as long as you're willing to, you know, to, to, to work for it, you can go a long way. You know, that's, that's, that's been really fun to see that because it's, it's pretty true. Yeah, and I've seen that. It, to me, you're an example of a person that strives for excellence in everything he does which I obviously esteem highly. Oh, thanks, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just have to be careful to not, you know, you know do too much, because I always want to, you know, do, I want to do it all, but I, you know, I have to be careful. <laughs> That's actually a note that I wrote that I was thinking I was going to ask you, but do you do, do you try to do a little less, but then do it very, very well? I do. Consciously. I think I do. Which makes sense, of course. If yeah. your standard is very high, it makes sense that you try to narrow your scope a little bit to make sure that you you are very good at everything that you do that's important to you. Yeah, and it's, it's a little bit, some people call it perfectionism, but I just, I really like to have a high level and I can't, I'm hard, really hard on myself and people don't see that, but you know, I'm not unkind to others, but I'm, I'm harder on myself than anybody else. Um, you know, if I'm gonna... <laughs> I'm just joking. You're an awesome friend, and uh, I'm glad we had this chance to get together and and hope that the American skiing public um, not only do they get to know you a little bit better through this, but also uh, for a person who's 50 years old to get 12th in the Berkey, not to mention your other World Cup results and such, it's a ridiculously high level, um, and there's a lot to learn from you and a lot to emulate, and I hope that 
that you're an inspire, inspiration to people as well as someone that they can learn from. You certainly are both of those to me as well as one of my absolute best friends in the world. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I really appreciate your friendship on a personal level, of course. Yeah, thank you, Ian. I appreciate your friendship. We've been, you know, had a long-standing relationship, friendship, you know, up, you know, back and forth, and you know, and <laughs> you, you know, growing downs. I can't think of many downs. No, no. Ah, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, um, yeah, just some of the, um, you know, just, I mean, we were teammates way back in 1992. You know, going way back, and I hardly knew you that. You know what I mean? And yeah. From then on, we got to know each other better through more, you know, occurrences. And yeah, it's just been, I'm very grateful for all the support and for more of your heart, you know, for your heartfelt support of me and uh, through the, through my, you know, tough times and helping me better, you know, be a better person. I mean, you're uh, truly dear to me, you know, as a friend. So thanks. Thanks for, I feel humbled for this opportunity to, to be interviewed. Well, I hope to see you this winter. Um... We don't know what this winter is going to bring, but um, hope to see you around. Sure. All right. Like, likewise, Ian. Thank you kindly. Thank you.